cardiac muscle. The heart is a pump and function of the heart valves. The heart is actually two separate pumps. A right heart that pumps blood through the lungs and a left heart that pumps blood through the systemic circulation that provides blood flow to other organs and tissues of the body. Each of these, each of these hearts is a pulsatile two-chamber pump composed of an atrium and a ventricle. The atrium is a weak primer pump for the ventricle and helps move blood into the ventricle. Ventricles supply the main pumping force that propels the blood either through the pulmonary circulation by the right ventricle or through the systemic circulation by the left ventricle. The heart is composed of three major types of cardiac muscle, atrial muscle, ventricle, ventricular muscle, and specialized excitatory and conductive muscle fibers. The atrial and ventricle types of muscle contract in the same way as skeletal muscle, except that the duration of contraction is much longer. The specialized excitatory and conductive fibers of the heart, however, contract only feebly. They contain few contractile fibril. Instead, they exhibit either automatic rhythmical electrical discharge in the form of action potentials or conduction of action potentials through the heart that provide an excitatory system that controls the rhythmical beating of the heart. Cardiac muscle is striated in the same manner as skeletal muscle. They have myofibrils that contain actin and myosin filaments. These filaments lie side by side and slide during contraction in the same manner as occurs in skeletal muscle. Cardiac muscle is a synctim. A synctium is a single cell or cytoplasmic mass containing several nuclei formed by a fusion of cells or by division of nuclei. Intercalated discs are the dark areas of the dark areas crossing the cardiac muscle fibers. Cell membranes that separate individual cardiac muscles from one another. Cardiac muscle fibers are made up of many individual cells connected in a series and in parallel with one another. Gap junctions at each intercalated disc, the cell membranes fuse with one another to form permeable or communicating junctions called gap junctions that allow rapid diffusion of ions. Therefore, ions move with ease in the intracellular fluid along the longitudinal axis of the cardiac muscle fibers. This allows action potentials to travel easily from one cardiac muscle cell to the next, past the intercalated disc. Thus, cardiac muscle is a synctism of many heart muscle cells. The cardiac cells are so interconnected that when one cell becomes excited, the action potential rapidly spreads to all of them. The heart actually is composed of two syncticisms, the atrial and the ventricle. The atrial constitutes the walls of two atria and the ventric ventricular constitutes the walls of two ventricles. This division of the heart this division of the muscle of the heart into two functional synthesis allow the atria to contract a short time ahead of the ventricular contraction, which is important for the effectiveness of heart pumping. The atria are separated from the ventricles by fibrous tissue that surrounds the atrioventricular valvular openings between the atrial and ventricle, ventricles. Normally, potentials are not conducted from the atrial syncytism into the ventricular syncytism directly through the fibrous tissue. Instead, they are conducted only by way of a specialized conductive system called the AV bundle, which is a bundle of conductive fibers several millimeters in diameter. 
The action potential in a ventricular muscle fiber averages about 105 millivolts. This means that the intracellular potential rises from a very negative value between beats to a slightly positive value during each beat. After the initial spike, the membrane remains depolarized for about 0.2 seconds. This, it then exhibits a plateau, followed at the end of plateau by abrupt repolarization. The presence of the plateau in the action potential causes ventricular contraction to last as much as 15 times as long in a cardiac muscle as in skeletal muscle. At least two major differences between the membrane properties of cardiac and skeletal muscle account for the prolonged action potential and the plateau. First, skeletal muscle. Action potential is caused almost entirely by the sudden opening of large and fast sodium channels that allow tremendous numbers of sodium ions to enter the skeletal muscle fiber from the extracellular fluid. These channels are called fast sodium channels because they remain open for only a few thousands of seconds and then abruptly close. At the end of this closure, repolarization occurs and the action potential is over with another thousands of a second or so. In cardiac muscle, the action potential is caused by opening of two types of channels. One, the same voltage activated fast sodium channels as those in skeletal muscle, and two, another entirely different population of L-type calcium channels or slow calcium channels. They're also called sodium, calcium sodium channels. These channels are slower to open and even more important, remain open for several tenths of a second. During this time, a large quantity of both calcium and sodium ion flows through these channels to the interior of the cardiac muscle fiber. This activity maintains a prolonged period of depolarization, which causes the plateau in the action potential. Further, the calcium ions that enter during this plateau phase activate the muscle contractile process, whereas the calcium ions that cause skeletal muscle contraction are derived from the intracellular sarcoplasmic reticulum. Second. Immediately after the onset of the action potential, the permeability of the cardiac muscle membrane for potassium ions decreases about five-fold. This effect does not occur in skeletal muscle. The decreased potassium permeability may result from the excess calcium influx through the calcium channels just noted. Regardless of the cause, the decreased potassium permeability greatly decreases the outflux of positively charged potassium ions during the action potential plateau. Thereby, it prevents early return of the action potential voltage to its resting level. When the slow calcium-sodium channels do not close at the end of a 0.2 to 0.3 second and the influx of calcium and sodium ions ceases, the membrane permeability for potassium ions also increases rapidly. This rapid loss of potassium from the fiber immediately returns the membrane potential to its resting level, thus ending the action potential. Phase zero of the cardiac muscle action potential is depolarization. Fast sodium channels open. When the cardiac cell is stimulated and depolarizes, the membrane potential becomes more positive. Voltage-gated sodium channels open and permit sodium to rapidly flow into the cell and depolarize it. The membrane potential reaches about plus 20 millivolts before the sodium channels close. Phase one is initial repolarization, where the fast sodium channels close. 
The sodium channels close and the cell begins to repolarize and potassium ions leave the cell through open potassium channels. In phase two, or the plateau, calcium channels open and fast potassium channels close. A brief initial repolarization occurs and the action potential then plateaus as a result of increased calcium ion permeability and decreased potassium ion permeability. The voltage-gated calcium ion channels open slowly during phase 1 and phase 0 and calcium enters the cell. Potassium channels then close and the combination of decreased potassium efflux and increased calcium influx causes the action potential to plateau. Phase 3 is rapid repolarization where calcium channels close and slow potassium channels open. The closure of calcium ion channels and increased potassium ion permeability, permitting potassium ions to rapidly exit the cell, ends the plateau and returns the cell membrane potential to its resting level. Phase 4 is the resting membrane potential, average about negative 90 millivolts. Cardiac muscle, like all excitable tissue, is refractory to re-stimulation during the action potential. A normal cardiac impulse cannot re-excite an already excited area of cardiac muscle. The normal refractory period of a ventricle is about 0.25 to 0.3 seconds, which is about the duration of a prolonged plateau action potential. There is an additional relative refractory period of about 0.05 seconds, during which the muscle is more difficult to excite than normal, but nevertheless can be excited by a very strong excitatory signal, as demonstrated by early premature contraction. The refractory period of atrial muscle is much shorter than that for the ventricles. About 0.15 seconds for the atria compared with 0.25 to 0.3 seconds for the ventricles. Excitation-contraction coupling is the mechanism by which the action potential causes the myofibrils of the muscle to contract. As is true for skeletal muscle, when an action potential passes over the cardiac muscle membrane, the action potential spreads to the interior of the cardiac muscle fiber along the membranes of the transverse tubules. The T-tubule action potential, in turn, act on the membranes of the longitudinal sarcoplasmic tubules to cause release of calcium ions into the muscle sarcoplasm for sarcoplasmic from the sarcoplasmic reticulum. In another few thousands of a second, these calcium ions diffuse into the myofibrils and catalyze the chemical reactions that promote sliding of actin and myosin filaments along one another. This produces the muscle contraction. The second effect in which the excitation-contraction coupling is different in cardiac muscle. In addition to the calcium ions that are released into the sarcoplasm from the cisternae of the sarcoplasmic reticulum, calcium ions also diffuse into the sarcoplasm from the T-tubules themselves at the time of the action potential. This opens voltage-dependent calcium channels in the membrane of the T-tubule. <clears throat> Calcium entering the cell then activates calcium release channels, also called ryanidine receptor channels, in the sarcoplasmic reticulum membrane, triggering, triggering the release of calcium into the sarcoplasm. Calcium ions in the sarcoplasm then interact with troponin to initiate cross-bridge formation and contraction by the same basic mechanism as for skeletal muscle. 
Without calcium from the T-tubules, the strength of cardiac muscle contraction would be reduced considerably because the sarcoplasmic reticulum of cardiac muscle is less well-developed than that of skeletal muscle and does not store enough calcium to provide full contraction. The T-tubules of cardiac muscle, however, have a diameter five times as great as that of skeletal muscle tubules, which means a volume 25 is great. Also, inside the D-tubules is a large quantity of mucopolysaccharides that are electronegatively charged and bind an abund abundant store of calcium ions, keeping them available for diffusion to the interior of the cardiac muscle fiber when a T-tubule action potential appears. The strength of contraction of cardiac muscle depends to a great extent the contraction of calcium ions in the extracellular fluids. A hard place in a calcium-free solution will quick, quickly stop beating. The reason for this response is that the openings of the T-tubules pass directly through the cardiac muscle membrane into the extracellular spaces surrounding the cells, allowing some extracellular fluid that is in the cardiac muscle interstitium to percolate, percolate through the T-tubules. Consequently, the quantity of calcium ions in the T-tubule system, i.e., the availability of calcium ions to cause cardiac muscle contraction, depends to a great extent on the extracellular fluid calcium ion concentration. In contrast, the strength of skeletal muscle contraction is hardly affected by moderate changes in extracellular fluid calcium concentration because skeletal muscle contraction is caused almost entirely by calcium ions released from the sarco plasmic reticulum inside the skeletal muscle fiber. At the end of the plateau of the cardiac action potential, the influx of calcium ions to the interior of the muscle fiber is suddenly cut off and calcium ions in the sarcoplasma are rapidly pumped back out of the muscle fibers into both the SR and the T-tubule extracellular fluid space. Transport of calcium back into the sarcoplasmic reticulum is achieved with the health of calcium adenosine tartar triphosphate or calcium ATPase pump. Calcium ions are also removed from the cell by a sodium-calcium exchanger. The sodium that enters the cell during this exchange is then transported out of the cell by the sodium-potassium ATPase pump. As a result, the contraction ceases until a new action potential comes along. The cardiac cycle the cardiac events that occur from the beginning of one heartbeat to the beginning of the next. Each cycle is initiated by spontaneous generation of action potential in the SA node, or sinus node. This node is located in the superior lateral wall of the right atrium near the opening of the superior vena cava, and the action potential travels from here rapidly through both atria and then through the AV bundle into the ventricles. Because of the special arrangement of the conducting system from the atria into the ventricles, there is a delay of more than 0.1 second during passage of the cardiac impulse from atria into the ventricles. This delay allows the atria to contract ahead of ventricular contraction, thereby pumping blood into the ventricles before strong ventricular contraction begins. Thus, the atria act as a primer pump for the ventricles, and the ventricle in turn provide a major source of power for moving blood through the body's vascular system. Diastole is the period of relaxation. The heart fills with blood, followed by a period of contraction called systole. The total duration of a cardiac cycle, including systole and diastole, is the reciprocal of the heart rate.
For example, if the heart rate is 72 beats per minute, the duration of the cardiac cycle is 1 over 72 minutes per beat. So about 0.0139 minutes per beat or 0.833 seconds per beat. <clears throat> when heart rate increases, the duration of each cardiac cycle decreases, including the contraction and relaxation phases. The duration of the action potential and the period of contraction or systole also decrease, but not as by as great of a percentage as does the relaxation relaxation phase or diastole. At a normal heart rate of 72 beats per minute, systole comprises about 0.4 of the entire cardiac cycle. At three times the normal heart rate, systole is about 0.65 of the entire cardiac cycle. This means that the heart beating at a very fast rate does not remain relaxed long enough to allow complete filling of the cardiac chambers before the next contraction. The ECG is electrical voltages generated by the heart and recorded on the ECG from the surface of the body. The P wave is caused by spread of depolarization through the atria and is followed by atria contraction, which also causes a slight raise in the atrial pressure curve immediately after the ECG P wave. About 0.16 seconds after the onset of the P wave, the QRS wave appears as a result of electrical depolarization of the ventricles, which initiates contraction of the ventricles and causes the ventricular pressure to begin rising. Therefore, the QRS complex begins slightly before the onset of ventricular systole. Finally, the ventricular T waves represent the stage of repolarization of the ventricles when the ventricular muscle fibers begin to relax. Therefore, T wave occurs slightly before the end of ventricular contraction. Blood normally flows continually from the great veins into the atria. About 80% of the blood flows directly through the atria into the ventricles even before the atria contract. Then, atrial contraction usually causes an additional 20% filling of the ventricles. Therefore, the atria function as a primer pump that increases ventricle pump pumping effectiveness as much as 20%. When the atria fail to function, the difference is unlikely to be noticed unless a person exercises. Then acute signs of heart failure occasionally develop, especially shortness of breath. In the atrial pressure curve, three minor pressure elevations called the A, C, and V atrial pressure waves are shown. The A wave is caused by atrial contraction. Ordinarily, the right atrial pressure increases from 4 to 6 millimeters of mercury during atrial contraction, and the left atrial pressure increases about 7 to 8 millimeters of mercury. The C wave occurs when the ventricles begin to contract. It's caused partially by slight backflow of blood into the atria at the onset of ventricular contraction but mainly by bulging of the AV valves backward into the atria because of increasing pressure in the ventricles. The V wave occurs at the end of ventricular contraction. It results from slow flow of blood into the atria from the veins while the AV valves are closed during ventricular contraction.
Then, when ventricular contraction is over, the AV valves open, allowing the stored atrial blood to flow rapidly into the ventricles, causing the V-wave to disappear. During ventricular systole, large amounts of blood accumulate in the right and left atria because of the closed AV valves. Therefore, as soon as systole is over and the ventricular pressures fall again to their lower diastolic values, the moderately increased pressures that had developed in the atria during ventricular systole immediately push the AV valves open and allow blood to flow rapidly into the ventricles. This period is called the period of rapid filling of the ventricles. It is the period of rapid filling that lasts for about the first third of diastole. During the middle third of diastole, only a small amount of blood normally flows into the ventricles. This blood that continues to empty into the atria from the veins and passes through the atria directly into the ventricles. During the last third of diastole, the atria contract and give an additional thrust to the inflow of blood into the ventricles. Immediately after ventricular contraction begins, the ventricular pressure abruptly rises, causing the AV valves to close. Then an additional 0.03 seconds is required for the ventric ventricle to build up sufficient pressure to push the semilunar valves or aortic and pulmonic valves open against the pressures in the aorta and pulmonary artery. Therefore, during this period, contraction is occurring in the ventricles, but no emptying is occurring. This period is called the period of isovolumic contraction or isometric contraction. Isovolumetric contraction. Meaning that the cardiac muscle tension is increasing, but little or no shortening of the muscle fibers is occurring. When the left ventricle pressure rises slightly above 80 millimeters of mercury and the right ventricle pressures rise slightly above 8, the ventricle pressures push the semilunar valves open. Immediately, blood begins to pour out of the ventricles. About 60% of the blood in the ventricle at the end of diastole is ejected during systole, and 70% of this portion flows out during the first third of the ejection period, with the remaining 30% emptying during the next two-thirds. Therefore, the first third is called the period of rapid injection, and the last two-thirds is called the period of slow injection, ejection. At the end of systole, ventricular relax relaxation begins, suddenly allowing both the right and left intraventricular pressures to de rapidly decrease. The elevated pressures in the distended large arteries that have just been filled with blood from the contracted ventricles immediately push blood back toward the ventricles, which snaps the aorta and pulmonary valves closed. For another 0.03 to 0.06 seconds, this ventricular muscle continues to relax even though the ventricular volume does not change, giving rise to a period of isovolumetric or isometric relaxation. During this period, the intraventricular pressures rapidly decrease back to their low diastolic volumes. Then the AV valves open to begin a new cycle of ventricular pump pumping. During diastole, normal filling of the ventricles increases the volume of each ventricle to about 110 to 120 milliliters. This volume is called the end diastolic volume. Then as the ventricular 
ventricles empty during systole, the volume decreases about 70 milliliters, which is called the stroke volume output. The remaining volume in each ventricle, about 40 to 50 milliliters, is called the end systolic volume. The fraction of the end diastolic volume that is ejected is called the ejection fraction and is usually equal to about 60% or 0.6. When the heart contracts strongly, the end systolic volume may decrease to as little as 10 to 20 milliliters. Conversely, when large amount of blood flow occurs into the ventricles during diastole, the ventricular end-diastolic volume can be as great as 150 to 180 milliliters in the healthy heart. By both increasing the end-diastolic volume and decreasing the end-systolic volume, the stroke volume output can be increased to more than double what's normal. The AV valves, or the tricuspid and the mitral valves, prevent backflow of blood from the ventricles into the atria during systole, and the semilunar valves, or the aortic and pulmonary artery valves, prevent backflow from the aorta to the pulmonary arteries into the ventricles during diastole. For anatomical reasons, the thin, filmy AV valves require almost no backflow to cause closure, whereas the much heavier semilunar valves require rather rapid backflow for a few milliseconds. The papillary muscles contract when the ventricle walls contract, but contrary to what might be expected, they do not help the valves closed. Instead, they pull the valves in toward the ventricles to prevent their bulging too far backward into the atria during ventricular contraction. If a corded tendine becomes ruptured or if one of the papillary muscles becomes paralyzed, the valve bulges far backwards during ventricular contraction, sometimes so far that it leaks severely and results in severe or even lethal cardiac incapacity. The aortic and pulmonary artery semilunar valves function quite differently from the AV valves. First, the high pressure in the arteries at the end of dias or end of systole cause the semilunar valves to snap closed, in contrast to the much softer closure of the AV valves. Second, because of smaller openings, the velocity of blood ejection through the aorta and pulmonary valves is far greater than that through the much larger AV valves. Also because of the rapid closure and rapid ejection, the edges of the aortic and pulmonary valves are subject to much greater mechanical abrasion than the AV valves. Finally, the AV valves are supported by the chordae tendine, which is not true for the semilunar valves. It's obvious from the anatomy of the aortic and pulmonary valves that they must be constructed with an especially strong yet very pious fibrous tissue to withstand the extra physical stress. The aortic pressure curve. When the left ventricle contracts, the ventricular pressure increases rapidly until the aortic valve opens. Then after the valve opens, the pressure in the ventricle rises much less rapidly because blood immediately flows out of the ventricle into the aorta and then into the systemic distribution arteries. The entry of blood into the arteries during systole causes the walls of these arteries to stretch and the pressure to increase to about 120 millimeters of mercury. Next, at the end of systole, after the left ventricle, ventricle stops ejecting blood and the aortic valve closes, the elastic walls of the artery maintain a high pressure 
in the arteries even during diastole. And in caesura occurs in the aortic pressure curve when the aortic valve closes. This is caused by a short period of backward flow of blood immediately before the closure of the valve, followed by a sudden cessation of backflow. After the aortic valve has closed, the pressure of the aorta decreases slowly throughout diastole because the blood stored is in distended elastic arteries flows continually through the peripheral vessels back to the veins. Before the ventricle contracts again, the aortic pressure usually has fallen to about 80 millimeters of mercury or diastolic pressure, which is two-thirds the maximal pressure of 120 or systolic pressure that occurs in the aorta during ventricular contraction. The most important components of the graphical analysis of ventricular pumping are the two curves labeled diastolic pressure and systolic pressure. These curves are volume pressure curves. The diastolic pressure curve is determined by the filling by filling the heart with progressively greater volumes of blood and then measuring the diastolic pressure immediately before ventricular contraction occurs, which is the end diastolic pressure of the ventricle. The systolic pressure curve is determined by recording the systolic pressure achieved during ventricular contraction at each volume of filling until the volume of non-contracting ventricle rises above 150 milliliters the diastolic pressure does not increase greatly therefore up to this volume blood can flow easily into the ventricle from the atrium above 150 milliliters the ventricular diastolic pressure increases rapidly partly because of fibrous tissue in the heart that will stretch no more and partly because of the pericardium that surrounds the heart becomes filled nearly to its limit. During ventricular contraction, the systolic pressure increases even at low ventricular volumes and reaches a max at a ventricular volume of 150 to 170 milliliters. Then, as the volume increases still further, the systolic pressure actually decreases under some conditions because at these great volumes, the actinomyosin filaments of the cardiac muscle fibers are pulled apart far enough that the stretch of each cardiac fiber contraction becomes less than optimal. Note especially that the max systolic pressure for the normal left ventricle is about 250 to 300 millimeters of mercury, but this varies widely with each person's heart strength and degree of stimulation by cardiac nerves. For the normal right ventricle, the max systolic pressure is between 60 and 80 millimeters of mercury. Volume pressure diagram during the cardiac cycle is divided into four phases. <clears throat> Phase one is the period of filling. Phase two is the period of isovolumetric contraction. During isovolumetric contraction, the volume of the ventricle does not change because all valves are closed. Phase 3 is the period of ejection. During ejection, the systolic pressure rises even higher because of still more contraction of the ventricle. At the same time, the volume of the ventricle decreases because the aortic valve has now opened and blood flows out of the ventricle and into the aorta. 
Phase four is the period of isovolumetric relaxation. At the end of the period of ejection, the aortic valve closes and the ventricular pressure falls back to the diastolic pressure level. The area subtended by the, this functional volume pressure, or EW, represents the net external work output of the ventricle during its contraction cycle. When the heart pumps large quantities of blood, the area of the work diagram becomes much larger. For cardiac contraction, the preload is usually considered to be the end diastolic pressure when the ventricle has become filled. The afterload of the ventricle is the pressure in the aorta leading from the ventricle. The important concepts of preload and afterload is that in many abnormal functional states of the heart or circulation, the pressure during the filling of the ventricle or the preload and the arterial pressure against the ventricle must contract or the afterload or both are altered from a normal to a severe degree. The heart muscle uses chemical energy to provide the work of contraction. About 70 to 90% of this energy is normally derived from oxidative metabolism of fatty acids. About 10 to 30% coming from other nutrients, especially lactate and glucose. Oxygen consumption has been shown to be nearly proportional to the tension that occurs in the heart muscle during contraction multiplied by the duration of the time that the contraction persists. This is called the tension time index. Because tension is high when systolic pressure is high, correspondingly more oxygen is used. Also, much more chemical energy is expended even at normal systolic pressures when the ventricle is abnormally dilated because the heart muscle tension during contraction is proportional to pressure times the diameter of the ventricle. This becomes especially important in heart failure when the heart ventricle is dilated. Paradoxically, the amount of chemical energy required for a given amount of work output is greater than normal even though the heart is already failing. <clears throat> when a person is at rest, the heart pumps only 4-6 to six liters of blood each minute. During strenuous exercise, the heart may be required to pump four to seven times this amount. The basic needs by which the volume pumped by the heart is regulated are, one, intrinsic cardiac regulation of pumping in response to changes in volume of blood flowing into the heart, and two, control of heart rate and strength of heart pumping by the autonomic nervous system. Under most conditions, the amount of blood pumped by the heart each minute is normally determined almost entirely by the rate of blood flow into the heart from the veins, called venous return. Each peripheral tissue of the body controls its own local blood flow. The intrinsic ability of the heart to adapt to increasing volumes of inflowing blood is called the Frank-Starling mechanism of the heart. The greater the heart muscle is stretched during filling, the greater the force of contraction and the greater the quantity of blood into the aorta. Or stated another way, within physiologic limits, the heart pumps all the blood that returns to, its, returns to it by the way of veins. When extra amount of blood flows into the ventricles, the cardiac muscle is stretched to a greater length. This stretching causes the muscle to contract with increased force because the actin and myosin filaments are brought to a more nearly optimal degree of overlap for force generation. Therefore, the ventricle, because of its increased pumping, automatically pumps the extra blood into the arteries. In addition to the most important effect of lengthening the heart muscle, still another factor increases heart pumping when its volume is increased. 
Stretch of the right atrial wall directly increases the heart rate by 10 to 20%. This also helps increase the amount of blood pumped each minute. One of the best ways to express the functional ability of the ventricles to pump blood is by ventricular function curves. Note that as atrial pressure for each side of the heart increases, the stroke work output for that side increases until it reaches the limit of the ventricle's pumping ability. As the right and left atrial pressures increase, the respective ventricular volume outputs per minute also increase. As the ventricles fill in response to higher atrial pressures, each ventricular volume and strength of cardiac muscle contraction increase, causing the heart to pump increased quantities of blood into the arteries. The pumping effectiveness of the heart also is controlled by the sympathetic and parasympathetic or vagus nerves, which abundantly supply the heart. Strong sympathetic stimulation can increase the heart rate and the force of heart contraction. Conversely, inhibition of sympathetic nerves to the heart can decrease cardiac pumping to a moderate extent. Therefore, when the activity of the sympathetic nervous system is depressed below normal, both the heart rate and strength of ventricular muscle contraction decrease, thereby decreasing the level of cardiac pumping as much as 30% below normal. Strong simulation of parasympathetic nerve fibers in the vagus nerves to the heart can stop the heartbeat for a few seconds, but then the heart usually escapes and beats at a rate of 20 to 40 beats per minute as long as the parasympathetic stimulation continues. In addition, Strong vagal stimulation can decrease the strength and heart muscle contraction by 20 to 30%. The vagal fibers are distributed mainly to the atria. This distribution explains why the effect of vagal stimulation is mainly to decrease the heart rate rather than to decrease greatly the strength of heart contraction. Effects of sympathetic or parasympathetic stimulation on the cardiac function curve. These curves represent function of the entire heart rather than a single ventricle. They show the relation between right atrial pressure and the input of the right heart and cardiac output from the left ventricle into the aorta. The curves demonstrate that at any given right atrial pressure, the cardiac output increases during increased sympathetic stimulation and decreased during increased parasympathetic stimulation. These changes in output caused by autonomic nervous system stimulation result from changes in heart rate and from changes in contractile strength of the heart. Effects of potassium and calcium ions on heart function. Excess potassium in the extracellular fluid causes the heart to become dilated and flaccid, slows heart rate, can block conduction of the cardiac impulse from the atria to the ventricles through the AV bundle and also can cause severe weakness of the heart, abnormal rhythm, and death. These effects result partially from the fact that a high potassium concentration in the extracellular fluid decreases the resting membrane potential in cardiac muscle fibers. High extracellular fluid potassium concentration partially depolarizes the cell membrane, causing the membrane potential to be less negative. 
As the membrane potential decreases, the intensity of the action potential also decreases, which makes contraction of the heart progressively weaker. Excess calcium ions cause almost exact opposite effects of those of potassium ions. Excess calcium ions causes the heart to move towards spastic contraction. These effects are caused by a direct effect of calcium ions to initiate the cardiac contractile process. Conversely, deficiency of calcium ions causes cardiac weakness. Increased body temperature or fever greatly increases the heart rate. It results from the fact that the heart rate the heart increases the permeability of cardiac muscle membrane to ions that control heart rate, which causes acceleration of the self-excitation process. Contractile strength of the heart often is enhanced temporarily by moderate increases in temperature, such as that which occurs during body exercise. But prolonged elevation of temperature exhausts the metabolic systems of the heart and eventually causes weakness. Decreased temperature greatly decreases the heart rate. Therefore, optimal function of the heart depends greatly on proper control of body temperature. Increasing the atrial pressure in the aorta does not decrease the cardiac output until the mean arterial pressure rises above 160 millimeters of mercury. During normal systolic atrial pressures of 80 to 140 millimeters of mercury, the cardiac output is determined almost entirely by the ease of blood flow through the body tissues, in turn, which controls venous return of blood to the heart.